0: How would you respond if someone asked you, what is the primary disposition of a Christian? What should it be? What should be that hallmark characteristic of someone that is following the Lord Jesus Christ? How would you answer? Augustine famously responded that the answer is threefold. First of all, Humility. Secondly, humility. And thirdly, humility. We are in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We'll walk through the first 11 verses, but concentrate most of our time in the first four and primarily in verse 3. And what we will see in this small paragraph is that Paul reminds the church in Philippi and us about the blessings we enjoy in Christ and encourages us to cultivate unity by way of Christ-like humility and Christ-like thinking. I've tried to summarize it a little bit more simply than that, a little portable phrase for you to put in your pocket and then pull back out on Thursday morning when it's been a long time since you've been in church and meditate on this idea once again. That humility cultivates unity. What Paul's calling us to do is outlined there for you in your exhortation, which is to have the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to define that throughout the sermon, but I have tried to make it succinct here. It's just, it just means humbly loving and serving others. You also notice from your outline that we have kind of created two character archetypes from this text, or I have. One, we will designate the consumer. And the other, a contributor. And we'll come across both this morning. Before we get into the text, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we pray that you would work humility deep into each of our hearts. That you would make us like Christ. That we would learn what it is to consider the interests of others ahead of our own. What it is to consider others as more important than ourselves. God, help us. Help us to love As you have loved us, make us more like Jesus this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To give you a little bit of context, Paul writes the letter of Philippians to the church in Philippi. And he's actually responsible for planting this church. Some of you will remember we saw this way back in Acts chapter 16 when we were walking through that particular book together. And you'll remember that Paul tried to go a bunch of other places first, but we read the Holy Spirit prevented him. And eventually Paul has a dream that he throws by his colleagues. He says, I had this dream. It seems like we should probably go to Philippi. They agree and they end up in Macedonia and in the Philippian church. And this church is born from that. Well, he's writing from prison. And so one of the reasons for writing is, of course, to encourage the Philippians about his current enchained status. And there are a myriad of other reasons for the letter as well, but I think primarily this letter is about unity in Christ and joy in Christ. About living as the people of Christ here on earth, as citizens of heaven. And Paul lays this out for us in his thesis statement in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, As citizens of heaven, uh, if you're from the ESV, you'll have a footnote here, and you can look down, and it'll say, literally citizens, right? And he brings up this topic again in chapter 3 and verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Say, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, literally one soul, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. So what Paul wants the Philippians to do in response to this letter is to live as citizens of heaven to share the same soul and heartbeat and to move and live as one. We do need to ask that question, though. What exactly does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? (laughs) That's That's a pregnant phrase, is it not? To live a life worthy of the gospel. I like what Dr. Carson says. He says, Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all, conduct that promotes the gospel. Paul is going to describe some of this conduct for us throughout the letter, and he begins with the subject matter of our text this morning. He begins by telling us about the importance of unity and humility. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we can see right there in verse 3, we're going to have that contrast between what I've labeled as a consumer and a contributor. And we are going to start with contemplating the posture or the disposition of the consumer. The consumer is described as someone who would do everything or most things out of selfish ambition or conceit, out of rivalry or self Love, the consumer is someone who has a me first mentality. They are worried about getting theirs. The primary driving question of the consumer's life is, well, what's in it for me? What am I getting out of it? Their attitude is one of entitlement, one that says, you owe me. The consumer does everything they can to get my way at anyone else's expense. They are concerned above all with their own comfort, their own satisfaction. They care not for others. The consumer is willing to tear apart relationships and churches. In an effort to obtain that which would make them happy, they put their interests ahead of the interests of everyone else. They will prompt disputes, fights over the smallest of matters. And we've seen this play out in, in churches all over the place. I read a few years back, and I've never forgotten it, uh, a blog of some things that churches actually split over, or at least had significant fights over. It comes from the, the pen of Tom Rayner, and I'm going to share a few of those fights with you, you know, beyond the normal, like, what's the temperature in the main hall, or uh, the carpet color. This is some of the ones he outlines. A 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown. Two, three, or four drawers. Rainer quips, this was an official cabinet meeting of the church. Another, a dispute in a church because the Lord's Supper featured cran grape juice instead of grape juice. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. He quips once more, perhaps they started a new church, the Right Blend Fellowship. An argument over whether or not the church should allow deviled eggs at the church potluck. We all know, of course, that's only if it's balanced with good angel food take. A petition to have all church staff (laughs) clean-shaven. That one wasn't here, all right? You figured out the other ones are, though, right? Some church members left the church in one instance because one of the members hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It actually resulted in a major fight and a church split. Sin starts fire from the smallest spark. And it's important that we recognize, even when we see these stories and kind of laugh at them, that we are susceptible to the same things. The same petty, selfish ambition and conceit exists in my heart and in yours. Our natural disposition is not that of humility, but of pride. We all very naturally want to get what's best for me. In fact, some of you, if you've been at Rockfish long enough, you can remember some pretty intense and, in hindsight, silly disputes. I think most famously is of a members' meeting ending in parking lot fisticuffs over landscaping, where, where to plant a bush. Friends, we must take stock of our hearts constantly. Constantly. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. And when we have a consumeristic attitude, we look at the church as if its primary function is to serve me, to meet my needs, to make sure I'm getting something out of it, to make sure I like where the bush is on my way into the building and the temperature keeps me comfortable. I mean, it's so easy for us to be divided over silly things. And so many of us don't put the premium on unity that the Bible does. I mean, Jesus Jesus stakes his reputation on it. He says in John 13, 34, Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what happens when when we say that we follow Jesus and we don't love one another and we're committed to me first is we dishonor the name and reputation of Jesus. I mean, it's so simple. Some of us maybe did it this morning. Singing a song you don't much care for and you think, you know, if only we would sing the songs I like, well then, then the church could really worship. Or or maybe this week, you thought to yourself, you know, if everybody thought about politics the way I do, well then the church could make real change in the world. Or maybe you've thought about your position on alcohol. If everybody thought about alcohol consumption the same way I do, well, then the church would be healthier. Or maybe you've thought like me. If everyone would listen to more Credence Clearwater Revival, they would be happier. The last one's probably true. My point, though, is this. When we turn preferences into principles, we get lost. When we turn issues of conscience into commands that God has not given, we pull on the thread of unity. The consumer Christian unravels unity because he or she is primarily concerned with their own interests. James writes in chapter 4 of his epistle, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions, your pleasures, what you want, are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you ask not, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. The consumer, Christian, if we can call it that, serves his or her own passions above all else. At every expense, their posture is one of taking. The question that we need to ask at this juncture of ourselves is this Have I been living as a consumer? Am I primarily motivated by what I want or by Christ and service to others? Paul wants us to be contributors. He makes that plain with the primary actions and manners that are in this text. Look with me at verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, verse 2 is going to give us the then part of our if clause. What Paul is doing is he's rooting this imperative he's about to give to the Philippians in the indicative. He's giving them doctrine before he calls them to devotion. He wants them to recognize what is true of them in Christ and then to utilize that as a motivating factor towards their Christ-like mindset and humility. Now some of you are going, wait a minute, that verse one looks like a conditional clause. It says if. So how are you saying that he's making it very explicit that they do have these things? That's a good question. The way that this functions is more like an inference than a conditional clause. But Paul is, is not actually calling these things into question by his way of writing. It's more, you can think of it like a conversation with a child would go. Right? So uh, if, and this conversation may or may not have happened in my life, um, if, if I have folded up some clothing for my children and I, and I ask them to put it away, and initially, uh, they don't respond with the purest of hearts. And they say, you know, no. My kids would never do such a thing. Uh, I, I might respond to them and say, has, well, this isn't true. Has, has mommy washed your clothes? I was going to say me, but I wouldn't get away with it. Has mommy washed your clothes? And they would say, yes. I'd say, H- has mommy dried your clothes? Yes. Has mommy folded your clothes? Yes. Then don't you think you should put your clothes away? Oh, yes. See, that this is what he's doing. He's, he's moving the Philippians into understanding what has been given to them in Christ and prompting them to pass it on to others. The... the imperative, as always, is flowing from the indicative. And so when we look at this text, we can wonder is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there comfort of love? Yes. Is there fellowship or participation with the Spirit? Yes. Is there affection and mercy and sympathy? Yes. Yes. Then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. And the idea is that the Philippians would say, yes. Now, we have to deal with something here in verse 2. What does it mean to think the same way and be intent on one purpose? Well, we have to define a Greek word here. There's a Greek word that shows up three times in these few verses. It shows up twice in verse 2 and once in verse 5. I'm going to probably mispronounce it, but I'll try to say it for you. I'm only going to say it once. And what it means is to think, but not only or even primarily in the intellectual sense. It equally involves one's emotions, attitudes, and will. And so you can see, see how the CSB and NASB and some others have worked out this translation. They want you to understand that, that it's not just thinking the same, but having the same outlook or mindset, attitude, right? And so you can see in the first part of verse two where it shows up, it's rendered pretty literally thinking the same way, right? He wants them to think the same way. It shows up again in the latter part of verse two, intent on one purpose, but having having the, the same goal. And then it shows up again in verse five as same attitude. Same word all three times. Adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And and so what's gained by this approach is that we avoid the error of thinking Paul is calling all Christians everywhere to monolithic thinking. It's not as if we all have to think the same thing about everything. So, you know, uh, we all have to think Uh, Blue is the best color. Uh, WVU is the best football team. Cannolis and cookies are the best dessert, that the front door should be painted red, and that dogs are far superior to cats, since, after all, they come from heaven. Cats. We we, we all... Janet's not here. I'm going to get away with it. (laughs) We all don't have to have the same thought. The unity that we are called to as Christians is not uniformity. And this is made evident throughout throughout the Bible, but but I think especially in Paul's metaphor of talking about the church as a conjunction of various body parts. Many parts, one body. Diversity in unity. And yes, do we need to agree on particular historic theological principles? Absolutely. Absolutely. But do we have to think the same on every issue of conscience? On every matter of politics? On every matter of preference? No. No, we don't. And so when we talk about unity, we we don't mean some pie-in-the-sky unity where there's never a difference of opinion, where there's never any kind of conflict. But what we do mean is that we have a unity that is built upon a common commitment to one another in Christ, which supersedes all these other commitments. And that's what's gained by the CSB and the NASB approach in translation here. We avoid that particular error in determining what it means to have the same mind or attitude. The, the downfall of that particular approach to translation is that we miss the repetition of the word, which I have pointed out to you this morning, right? So just a good principle in Bible reading is if you're reading a paragraph or a chapter or a section and the same word keeps coming up over and over again, it's like a blinking light. It screams out for attention that this is what we need to get. You need to pay attention to this word. So if we were in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the phrase that shows up over and over again is build up, build up, build up. And Paul's point is your gifts, your spiritual gifts, all the things that God has blessed you with are there to build up the church, right? We need to see those words. And so the the word here is, I'm gonna say it, "freneo," And the ESV opts for this approach, making it clear that there is a repetition. So in the ESV, it reads, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then in verse five, have this mind among yourselves. Bringing attention to both translations helps us to understand this word, and it helps us to understand what, what Paul is getting at. It helps us to taste a little bit of what he's cooking. He wants us to think like Jesus. To serve and love like Jesus. He wants us to move with the same kind of heartbeat and attitude and mission. But still, we ask, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to have the mind or mindset, the attitude, attitude set, if you will, the outlook? of Jesus. And you'll notice, but Paul's going to give us an answer, but he's not going to outline, you know, seven keys to having the mind of Christ. I mean, he's going to tell us, like, in humility, right, consider others more significant than yourselves and look out for the interests of others. And you say, that's not entirely clear to me. And so he's going to give us an example And he does so by pointing us to Jesus. Look at verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, exploited, taken advantage of. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus humbles himself by stepping out of heaven and taking on flesh becoming a man in order to rescue men and women he humbles himself in that way and yet his humility goes further it says he emptied himself plenty of ink has been spilled over this phrase we're just going to spend a little short time on it emptied himself does not mean emptied himself of divinity If he emptied himself of the attributes of deity, he would no longer be God. and That would be problematic for us. For example, if you had a porcupine and it empties itself of all the attributes of a porcupine, you no longer have a porcupine. You might have a pineapple or a cucumber or a rabbit, but but you don't have a porcupine anymore. If God empties himself of his attributes, then he's no longer God. But the text doesn't say he emptied himself of something. It says he emptied himself. We would perhaps say in modern idiom, he made himself a nobody. Jesus made himself nothing He humbled himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. You with me? Jesus did not make himself nothing. He did not humble himself by subtracting from himself deity. But by adding to himself humanity. He humbled himself and became a man. And he did more than that. He he continued to humble himself further and further. You read this text and you see Jesus going down, down, down. He's making himself low in service to his people, to all who would put their faith in him. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Our Jesus was dressed in purple robes and spit upon. Our Jesus was crowned with thorns, drew blood from his head and struck. Our Jesus was suspended in the air with nails driven through his hands and his feet and mocked. Our Jesus hung on a tree and was cursed, and he chose it. No one takes my life from me, he said, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus lays his life down in humility for you. For you. For me. For me. God, the creator of the universe, became a man. Not just a man. He humbled himself to the point of being spit upon and suspended in the air in the most ignominious death one can conceive of so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven when we turn from sin and acknowledge his lordship. Non-Christian, you need to grapple with this. This good news of salvation from the hell you deserve. You've been in rebellion against God. You've been living your life your way instead of his way. You've been following your heart instead of listening to his word. You are in rebellion against God. And you deserve to die a traitor's death. You deserve hell. And God offers to you pardon. Christ's death, that blood can be applied to you. You need only to repent and believe. We should be astounded when we think of the death of Christ. For me. Who, who can stand next to the cross and puff out their chest in pride? Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Paul says, you want to know what the mind of Christ is? Look to the cross. You want to know what a humble mindset is? Look to the cross. It points us to the cross. We consider what it means to, in humility, be contributors rather than consumers. Look with me again at verse 3. There's a contrast built into this verse. So all that means is there's a negative and a positive. There's a, don't do this, but do this. Do not out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's the negative. And the positive is, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The contributor puts the interests of others first. The contributor lives in humility. The contrast between a consumer and a contributor can't be any more bright, can it? I mean, the consumer consumes... And the contributor contributes. The consumer looks at the church like many of us look at Amazon, Walmart, or Burger King. The church is there to make life better, to put a smile on my face, and to make sure I have everything my way. But the contributor, the contributor looks at the church much more like a mother looks at her children. Churches to be served, sacrificed for, and encouraged. When I tried to think about what it means to have the, the mindset of Christ, to look to the interests of others, to consider others more significant than myself this week, I couldn't think of a better example than a, a mother with her children. I mean, think about it. All of us are here. Because our mothers put our interests ahead of their own. And think of all the things moms do carry the child for nine months, give birth, feed, teach, discipline when necessary, love, I mean, nurture. This is how we ought to approach the church. We ought to be committed to loving and sacrificing for one another. Serving one another. This is what, this is what Christ has done for us. Not because we're good people, but because he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died For us. Surely, we can love one another. He died for us so that we might care for one another. Surely, surely we can humble ourselves enough to put others' interests ahead of our own. And what great motivation we have all these blessings in Christ in verse 1. But I want to point out to you, there's a second motivation in this text, and it's in verses 9 through 11. You see, there's a general principle in Scripture that God lifts up the humble and exalts them. And we see it in the life of Christ. Look with me at verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Paul wants us to hear the command in verse 4 with the promise of exaltation together with Jesus. Jesus is lifted up to his rightful place in the universe, ruling and reigning over all things. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord. And friends, if we are in Christ and we are following him in humility, his death models for us the same trajectory of our own lives. In other words, if you follow Jesus in humility, the end is exaltation, is being lifted up. This this should encourage us. It should free us from the temptation to try and make much of ourselves. You don't have to lift yourself up, brother or sister. God will do that. And it's over and over again. Look, Psalm 147, verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. Matthew 23, 11, Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. You don't have to worry about putting yourself First, because God has got you. You don't have to worry about promoting yourself because God will lift you up at the proper time. Follow Jesus in humility and honor will eventually come. And so we see our text is flanked by encouragement. All the blessings we enjoy in Christ right now. Some of the blessings that are going to come when Christ returns and we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. And in the middle is this imperative, this command. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, this is another bloodstream verse. Just like last week, this is another bloodstream verse. This is the kind of verse we want in our DNA. We want to be a Philippians 2 kind of people. We want to put the interests of others ahead of our own. We want to humbly love and serve one another Almost put this together, made it lerve. You can, you know, lerve one another. We, we want to be contributors. We want to build up the body of Christ to the glory of God. We want our church to be a faithful display of God's glory so that when our community looks at us, they will see a true rendering of what God's holiness and love looks like. We want to have such a Humble attitude. We want to have the mindset of Christ so that if somebody asks us, well, what is Jesus like? We can say, come with me to church on Sunday morning and I'll show you what Jesus is like. There's still a pesky question though. How how do I become this kind of person? How do I become humble? I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones answered this question when it was posed to him. He says this, A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him. And he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy that I could tell him. You know, Do this or that and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because... I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble. And that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see Jesus. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look to Christ. You realize who He is and what He has done. And you are humbled. What's the primary disposition of the Christian life? Well, the answer is threefold humility, humility, humility. Brothers and sisters, let us look full in Christ's wonderful face this morning and be humbled and humbly worship him together. Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. Thank You for sending Christ to live the lives we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, and to raise from the dead, victorious over death. We thank You that in Him there is forgiveness of sins. That in him there is fullness of joy. That in him there is security the world cannot shake or break. That in him there is life everlasting. It is in him we put our faith and trust. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.